0: Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Uh, Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Chris McKelly of Aprian McKelly, a law professor, and also the author of two new case books. And so Chris, uh, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, John and Tim. What what exactly is a case book? You got two of them, so you must like them. So what are what are, what are they?
2: <laughs> well a case book is uh, like its name might connote that you utilize cases appellate court uh, cases uh, decided by the judicial branch To teach about the law and the casebook method is what is used by law schools throughout the country uh, because they are focused on judge made law um, to help people learn to better. Uh, analyze and apply laws to the facts of specific cases. And so you utilize a casebook to certainly learn about a subject, the subject matter of the casebook itself, but you're also seeing how judges work through their decisions um how they analyze a problem and set it out and apply whatever you know constitutional or statutory laws might be applicable. Um, and so they are historically used by law schools, but I also attempted to make mine available for, college courses as well. So they are not, um, you know, super heavy on just cases alone. There's also a lot of explanatory material. And I've included what I've called a notes and comments section, which is basically raising questions uh, and maybe suggesting further discussion or issues to be addressed that the reader themselves could utilize or certainly instructors in colleges or law schools could utilize themselves to prompt in class discussions and further thought.
1: But there's, there's nothing in the stuff that I like uh, whose bill got beat because some legislator, for whatever reason, some legislator didn't do a vote one time or another whose blood is on the floor. Who's going <laughs> for a tough election and is being uh, you know, it's got to get a vote that'll play out one way or another. Uh, Yes, it's not. uh, You know, that's what makes capital life worth living.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's very that is very true. Um, It's not the blood and gore of the legislative process. Uh, Granted, it's probably a dry material for a certain segment out there, undoubtedly. Uh, But it's an effort to set forth in one place the. Well, the first book is on direct democracy. The second is on the legislature and the legislative process. And in each instance, it's an effort to lay out the law, both the constitutional
1: provisions and the statutory provisions. And the sort of direct democracy is code for the ballot initiative. Well, we have
2: three forms of direct democracy in California, the initiative, the referendum and the recall. About two dozen of the states have some form of direct democracy. Not all of them have all three provisions. California um, has all three, plus California, as you very well know, both of you do, uh, probably the most active direct democracy in the nation, um, even amongst the two dozen states that have it.
0: You know, getting back to what you were saying earlier about what John was alluding to about the other things, the sort of the off-the-books uh, things that will govern lawmaking and lobbying, do you have any sense, I mean, this would be sort of vague, but do you have a sense of what what percentage is of lobbying and the professional lobbying is really just doing a job by the books, doing all the things you're going to learn in school? And what percentage of it really is having an understanding of these sort of the unspoken rules, again, knowing when a legislator is going to uh, have a tough time making a vote because they're coming up for an election or uh, when there are you know, there's a lot of internal politics. Sometimes legislators just don't like each other and they're not going to support each other's bills. And that's not something you're going to learn in a class at McGeorge. You know? um, do you have a sense of what, of how that breaks out as far as your, your profession? What percentage is things you really learn in the books and other things? Or you know, what percentage is things you learn kind of on the job and seeing how, how things really work?
2: Uh, Tim good question first I don't think I can uh, you know attribute a percentage to uh, to each of the little component parts I think about effective lobbying but I think it's a combination of things. Certainly, an understanding of the legislative process is critical, no doubt. The relationships that you have and develop uh, with elected uh, officials and their staff is of critical importance. The subject matter uh, that which you are lobbying about. About is obviously important, so that you're an effective messenger, um, and and the advocacy skills are definitely a key part. And then there's the amorphous, you know, sort of political aspects, Some of the things that you are suggesting, uh, understanding relationships amongst legislators. You know, for example, if you've picked uh, Assembly Member X as your author, uh, but that Assembly Member is at um Uh, you know, it got crosswise with the Senate policy committee chair who now doesn't even want to set your bill because that policy committee chair doesn't like your author, (laughs) right? There are those those aspects. And so it's hard for me to attribute a percentage to each of those different factors, but certainly there are a number of different critical aspects that go into being an effective lobbyist. And yes, the things that you don't learn, I think, is probably uh, more than a majority. I've learned most of the stuff that I've learned by subject matter that I lobby on. Certainly, the legislative process is much more experiencing it and seeing it in action than merely reading the Assembly rules, the Senate rules and the joint rules, for example, Uh, it's one thing to read it on a piece of paper. It's another thing to actually experience it and have to comply with those rules. And I think that it's fair to attribute that to anything else. When my kids uh, have been growing up, uh, I spent a lot of time coaching them. In soccer and refereeing games at all at all levels, um, up to the semi-pro level, and it's one thing to study the laws of the game, as they are called, uh, in soccer, uh, in, in classroom. And it's another thing to be on the field, applying them in a split second. So it's, it's the same analogy in the legislature. It's one thing to um, you know, read about amending bills. It's another thing to experience your bill being amended in a friendly way or having uh, unfriendly, right? or so-called hostile amendments being made to your bill. It's one thing reading the deadlines when bills have to clear the policy or fiscal committee. It's another thing understanding how to get your bill uh, out of the fiscal committee in time for the deadline to make it to the floor.
1: Has there been any change uh, in the way you do that uh, as we've gradually gone to a more and more dominant Democrat controlled legislature? Is it different now than it was I don't know, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago?
2: You know, I, in some minor ways, but for me, I have always, you know, literally talked to everybody, uh, even those who might be your natural allies so that you don't take those people for granted and folks that you would not expect to be on your side or share your client's perspective because every once in a while you find a surprise uh, you alluded to, uh, you know, personalities of legislators, for example. Well, there have been times where uh, a legislator who might not be in line with your client's view on a bill um, had a bad experience with that author, for example, in the bill that you're opposing. And so, you know, they're just not going to vote for it this time around, even though under normal circumstances, they would have voted for it. Um so, you know, to me, you you talk to everybody, and that's always been my approach to lobbying, and that hasn't changed over the past 20 plus years. Um, you know, I think that with um, the the changeover uh, with legislators, there's still, A fair amount of transition going on, uh, even with the advent of the 12 year term limits. Right. I mean, this year we've seen uh, one senator leave to go to the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. We've seen two assembly members appointed to fill statewide office vacancies. I mean, we still have a fair amount of movement in the legislature, despite, you know, what uh, 12 year term limits in one single house was supposed to bring us. So you always have to work your issues. Um, You know, it's not like when I first started lobbying and I was exposed to what I'll call the old timers at that point in time, you know, who had (laughs) maybe served with sitting legislators who are obviously since termed out or they've worked with them with years where you literally could talk to two or three members and resolve an issue or get a bill passed or defeat a bill. Today, not so much. You really have to talk to everybody and work your bill through the process at every step of the way.
1: you do a lot of electronic talking, meaning email, digital, as opposed to the good old days when you could do a face-to-face or Are you still able to go in somebody's office, make an appointment and sit down and chat? Well, up until the middle of
2: March of last year, We obviously were able to be in everybody's office and wrote freely up to June 15th, Apps and a handful of uh, meetings where you uh, met outside the Capitol or perhaps ran into people, you know, walking on L Street or the K Street Mall or going to lunch or something. uh, Most everything was by Zoom. Uh, a handful of calls and emails. Look, up until the pandemic, had we lobbied by uh, email? Sure. Had we lobbied by telephone? Sure. Had we lobbied by Zoom? Not very often because it's a short, you know, block or two or in my case, four block walk to the Capitol. And, you know, you go and see people in our office, etc. It's probably far more effective to be face to face. Since June 15th, um, there are a number of legislators and staff who are taking appointments um, and doing in-office meetings,
1: but the majority are still doing things remotely. On the cases and materials and direct democracy in California and the California legislature and the legislative process, right sort of the top of when we were chatting, it seemed like these might be most interesting to law school students or to followers of the legislature and want to get to a level down in the weeds further than they've gone before. Uh, Do the policymakers ever read these? Do any of your clients read these, do you think? Or would they? Yeah, well, your first question is, yes, these are, I mean, casebooks,
2: again, are historically used by law students. Uh, The way I put them together and wrote in them, I'm hoping that they would be of interest and use to, Uh, College professors and their students as well. Um, Most colleges in California teach a uh, California politics type course. A lot of them teach election law. Um, Several of them, like here at Sac State, have a legislative process course so you could use them there as well as in law school. Yes, I would hope that practitioners, fellow lobbyists and certainly those who work in and around the Capitol would definitely be able to get a lot out of the legislature and legislative process. You know, I address uh, the laws and, and court decisions on a lot of questions that I often get from both colleagues and legislative staffers about, you know, points in the budget process Um, you know, can things like, you know, what can and cannot be included in trailer bills? And, you know, does the legislature have to adopt the entire budget and all of the trailer bills at once or by June 15th? You know, uh, it addresses a lot of practical type things. And certainly, if you want to have a better understanding of the legislature and its powers and authority and the legislative process. I think you could, you know, get a fair amount uh, out of the casebook. Definitely,
1: I think most budgets I've covered the trailer bills, and they kept getting more each time. But the trailer yep. bills were supposed to be signed, the agreements made uh, before the final budget ever got signed. In other words, the governor wouldn't sign the budget till the trailer bills were all in line. This year seemed to be different than that. Maybe the agreements were made, but the signatures it didn't come together. Uh, before the constitutional deadline? Yeah, well, I mean, I think
2: that the pro tem and the speaker both announced on uh, June 14th, when they passed the main budget bill, that they said this is a two-party agreement, uh, the Assembly and the Senate. We don't have total buy-in by the governor and of course the governor didn't sign it immediately right he took the full 12 days that he was allotted and they negotiated um the budget and a lot of trailer bills i mean we're up to 50 bills uh before the summer or by the end of i'm sorry by the start of the summer recess we already had 50 bills that included main budget bill three Budget bills junior, all amending the main budget. And then the remaining uh 46 were trailer bills. And there's more to come in August, late August, early September. I mean, things like high-speed rail funding, uh, wildfire prevention, uh, the cap allocating the cap and trade dollars, a drought package. I mean, these are all the things that they're still negotiating over the summer recess. So we'll see more than
1: 50 bills. The, uh, the trailer bills enact, make the changes, enact the laws that put the budget essentially into practice. Yes, they enact statutory changes needed to implement the main budget, correct. So if those trailer bills are still out there on the trailer and they haven't been brought in yet, part of the budget's been signed, part of it hasn't been signed. So the budget isn't in effect, at least the full budget isn't in effect. Is that fair to say? Or Well, you could describe it that way, but
2: but for the constitutional requirement of meeting the June fifteenth deadline, um, that that has been complied with. There's no requirement that uh, every item of spending and every necessarily necessary trailer bill be enacted by either June fifteenth, let alone July one, the start of the fiscal year in the state.
1: Uh, Chris, when you when you talk to your students yep. uh, about the state legislature about this kind of a process. What is the most common question you think? What is a very common question you get from students as you try to explain what happens up here? What, what kind of responses do you get? Or do you get comments of surprise? You mean they do it that way? Why do they do it that way? Oh, definitely. Because first of all, Um,
2: those interested in like at McGeorge, they have what they call the capital lawyering program. And so like my course lawmaking in California is a part of that curriculum, their legislative clinic, a year long program, both semesters where students actually come up with bill ideas and Trying to move their bill through the process and, and other uh, courses that are a part of that capital lawyer curriculum. Some people are entirely new to it, and some are like myself. You know, they were political science majors in college and always had an interest in civics and government. Well, almost all of Uh, students, as was mine at that time, exposure was to the Congress and, you know, federal lawmaking. And most have a very rudimentary understanding, right? They generally know that mm, both houses of Congress and the legislature have to pass a bill and the governor or president has to sign it. And OK, you know, much beyond that. Sure. Some of the nuances of, you know, California's legislative process, like the gut and amend process or uh, the suspense files used by the appropriations committees, you know, that are potentially unique. I can't speak for all 50 states by any means, but certainly are unique. Yeah, I think you get a lot of wow, they do it that way? Or is that the best way of doing it? Um, You know, things like that. I think one of the things that always comes up is how many bills the California legislature does. And as you know, from, you know, prior conversations, I'm not a huge fan of the, uh, of the bill factory um, that the legislature is. Uh, To be fair, if you look back historically, like, you know, Duke Magian and beyond days, they actually did many more bills than we do today. But even today, I think there are too many. I'd much rather see them uh, really, um, you know, roll up their sleeves and delve into the gory details of legislation than, you know, our so-called two-and-two two rule, right? It's a two, two, and witnesses, yeah. two witnesses pro and two witnesses con, usually capped at two minutes apiece. Yeah, we don't get... Uh, you know, much um, robust debate in, in policy committees in the legislature and even less in the fiscal committees, because most bills get waived from any public hearing and then they're just moved along on a, on a vote without much discussion or debate.
1: At the executive <laughs> level, there are differences in, between the authority of the governor and the authority of the president on budget issues. And a couple that always struck me was um, the governor of California has a certain line item authority, veto authority, and the governor can put, if he doesn't act on anything, basically put it in his pocket. After a certain period of time, it becomes law if he doesn't act on it. The president puts it in his pocket. If he doesn't do anything, he or she doesn't do anything on it, it's vetoed. Uh, The president does not have the line item authority of the governor, at least not the same way. So it means that the president gets a whole stew, a giant potpourri of legislation, either signs or gets rid of, or vetoes. uh, So it gets loaded up with pork. I'm sure California does too. I'm just not quite sure if it's as rare a pork as you might get in Washington. So what is better than the other... Um, Well,
2: each has its strengths and weaknesses. And of course, it's also dependent upon what your view is in terms of how much power authority you want the executive branch to have vis-a-vis the legislative branch of government. Um, We've seen that debate in action at the at the federal level, um, you know, with how much exercise of power, whether it's on. you know, military affairs and uh, the use of war powers authority, right? Um, And we've seen it over the last uh, 16 months or so, certainly here at the state level, uh, concerning the Emergency Services Act and executive orders, you know, and how much power the governor does or should have, right, Um, in, in exercising the executive branch authority. So, I guess the answer to your question from my perspective is, again, how much authority do you deem appropriate for the executive to have at either the federal or the state level? You know, the two items that you talked about, whether you can pocket veto or pocket sign a bill, I'm not sure that that's any particular leverage or additional authority. Most presidents and most governors you know, sign or veto bills. I mean, I think Governor Brown once or twice, uh, for example, the, the most high profile one was the Ted Lieu, now Congressman Ted Lieu, that put the advisory measure on the ballot about whether the Citizens United case should be overturned or not. Uh, The governor, Governor Brown, let it become law and therefore be placed on the ballot without his signature because he just didn't think an advisory measure was necessary or appropriate. And I think he, you know, that happened once or twice during his entire four year terms, you know, so it's not used that much. The line item veto authority or the so-called pencil authority, that is very different um, and certainly gives the governor a fair amount of power, particularly if ultimately the legislature sends the governor a budget that he or she objects to, or at least objects to certain portions of. Uh, now, you've noticed in recent years, even like the tail end of the Brown administration, that most of those issues and conflicts got worked out so that the governor wasn't usually not line iteming anything entirely, but reducing. You know, the constitution provides that the governor can reduce or eliminate an item of appropriation. Um, and so when it's used, it's usually used to reduce an item of appropriation rather than strike it entirely. Um, And that gives the governor, you know, a fair amount of power uh, in the end because even after the legislature, as you know, sends the governor a spending bill, a bill that appropriates money, the governor can, again, reduce or line out something. Uh, but any smart legislators and certainly the current pro tem Tony Atkins and Speaker Anthony Rendon, uh, you know, are smart political players. And um, if there's something objectionable uh, that's important to them, they undoubtedly are going to work things out with the governor rather than be surprised after they send him the budgets. To them come across and say oh my gosh he vetoed or reduced this particular item that was you know very important to uh, our colleagues uh, they're not going to let that sort of thing happen they're going to work these things out in advance with the governor so uh, chris just one last question where can we get your two new case books yeah, John, for those who are interested in either of the books, the Direct Democracy Casebook is published by Kendall Hunt Publishing Company, and the Legislature and Legislative Process Casebook is published by Carolina Academic Press. If you go to either website and plug in my name and or the title or part of the title of the casebooks, uh, it'll come up and each has its own dedicated webpage uh, where you can purchase either a hard- hard copy uh, or an electronic version. Uh, we know that those are become more popular with everybody but particularly you know college and law students these days and so most book publishers now give both an electronic version as well as a hard copy
1: version. Uh, Chris McKelly, <laughs> thank you so much thanks for chatting with us. Uh, thank, Tim Foster, thanks so thank much you. John and Tim. Chris McKellie thank you so much thanks for joining us today and now Tim Foster and I are going to segue grace, gracefully segue into our feature the person who had the worst week in California politics.
0: The worst week worst week worst week
1: And after considerable debate we've come up with San Francisco mayor London Breed but there are a couple of runner ups Tim what do you think?
0: Uh Yeah, well, this week we did have the first debate between the uh, candidates for the recall. Now, Larry Elder, who appears to be the frontrunner at this point, was not there, nor was Caitlyn Jenner, but there were other other frontrunners. And the general consensus from what I've read from the Twitterati and the pundits is that uh, Doug, uh, that uh, John Cox, the former gubernatorial candidate, uh, the last go-round, did not do well. Uh, they did not care for the giant bear. They did not care for the ball of garbage. And in general, they, they were not particularly impressed by his uh, arguments in the debate. And perhaps even worse, uh, San Diego mayor, former San Diego mayor, Kevin Faulkner, who was seen very much as the front runner prior to Larry Elder coming into the race, this is a person that had been sort of anointed by uh, the serious, you know, serious viewers of this race. Uh, He has failed to catch fire, and in fact, a problem that I would identify is that immediately following this debate, uh, Larry Elder's uh, campaign donations have gone through the roof, and he's got millions of donations now, and that cannot be good for Kevin Faulkner, nor John Cox. Uh, so I think both of them had a fairly bad week. On, on the natural, maybe uh, maybe Faulkner had a worse week because so far, John Cox has not really been having that good of, <laughs> that good of a run all the time. Uh, but I, my sense was that Kevin Faulkner did not do what he needed to do in that debate. Uh, I will leave it to others who are smarter and more insightful to me uh, to to make a final decision. On, that, on the that, other hand, at think.
1: least he showed up, right?
0: Hey, at least he showed up. <laughs> that, and then uh, as we also looked, Kaiser, uh, you know, California, California born and bred organization, uh, Kaiser
1: did not have a good week. And do you want to kind of go through what happened there with them? Well, the federal government, uh, the Justice Department, sued Kaiser on Thursday. Uh, Thursday last that- week. Uh, Thursday of last week. Yes, that's good because of the timing element here. <laughs> Thursday of last week, uh, they sued Kaiser, contending that the the uh, that Kaiser had committed Medicare fraud and had pressured doctors into giving incorrect diagnoses on in various medical records. It obviously sounds like a complicated suit. It sounds like uh, it's not good news for Kaiser. Uh, it sounds like um, Kaiser has some explaining to do. They have really done it yet. The case has not come into court yet. We just have the filings. There hasn't been a response other than the spoken response from a communications person that we saw. So that's going to be down the line. And it's obviously going to take time to resolve. But uh, you don't want to have your week uh, ending with uh, getting slapped with a suit by the federal government. And that's what happened to Kaiser. Yeah. That's, so that's as far cool. as London Breed goes, uh, I still think, you know, she's at the top of our list this week. Uh, she's been hit with a fine for doing three things. One of them was for um, asking for clemency, asking for commutation of sentence for her brother, who is serving a 44-year term. He served half of it, about 20 years of a 44-year term for involuntary manslaughter and armed robbery. She asked the governor for, to Governor Brown, excuse me, former Governor Brown to commute the sentence. She did it on with a number of other relatives, several other relatives asking, uh, they joined together and asked, but they put the letter together on letterhead of the mayor's office. And that's the violation that the allegation, the violation is that she, um, she used her official office to get favor for a family member. Uh, the second thing she did was improperly report a campaign contribution from 2015. And the third thing is uh, a person she used to date, uh, Mohamed Nourou, in San Francisco, former public works director who's been involved in a whole area of scandal that the Chronicle has covered faithfully, um, that he paid for her car to be repaired. He paid her, he gave her basically value by having her fixing uh, fixing her car and having that done, paying for it. So that's the three, those are the three issues. He agreed to them in a settlement agreement on Monday, last Monday, and the next day the Chronicle got it and did a story on it, good story on it. And uh, this is a $23,000 fund, is that right? Yes, it's $22,791, but that's almost $23,000. Uh, and yes, it's about twenty three thousand, and that's the largest fine, according to our fines taxable. Yeah.
0: Everything else in California is taxable. The shift pay tax on that fine. Sorry,
1: I'm being <laughs> She probably doesn't. Uh, she doesn't. But it's out of pocket, and I don't believe she can use campaign donations, campaign contributions to pay it. So this is, you know, she's getting smacked. Um, and it's the largest find, according to what I've been reading, in recent history is the way it's worded, which usually means we don't know how far back it goes, but the only ones we remember uh, are smaller than this one. So, London Breed, uh, you had a bad week. Yeah, I would say she's definitely had better weeks. Uh, yes. As as have Kaiser,
0: and as have John Cox and Kevin Faulkner. Yeah. Now, Larry Elder is having a great week.
1: Yeah. He doesn't show up and he gets an increase in campaign donations. And apparently we'll see if that translates into better uh, polling. Uh, I think there's a stretch there for Arnold Schwarzenegger that the less he popped up in ads, the more, the more support he got, at least uh, at one period in the campaign during the during his reelection campaign. I remember we reported that was pretty funny. And when you'd mentioned Larry Elder, his campaign donations going up. uh, And if that does indeed translate into positive, more positive polling for him. I think that would be something of anomaly. So if he hides out for the rest of the recall election, doesn't do anything, maybe his numbers will improve, keeps his yap closed. Maybe his numbers will get better and the sky will, you know, cross the finish line.
0: It could be one. There's a guy, I, I forgive me if I get his name wrong, I think it's Major Williams. I'd never heard of him before uh, before the recall, but he announced for the recall Fundraised for the recall, and then, as I understand, never actually filed for the recall, but has fundraised quite a bit of money. And there, I believe, there's people investigating what happened there and where that money does he have to give it back, etc. But you know, he's he's playing that. Hey, I'm I'm not only not going to run, but I'm still going to fundraise. So this could be the future of politics. You just announce you're going to run and collect the money.
1: Give me the money, or I'll run for office. Exactly. You know, this might work. So, well, I well, that's it. Tim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. And this is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim
0: Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by Tassin the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.